Good morning. It is a joy, a blessing for our family to be back at Stonehill. It is difficult to believe that it was 17 years ago, just about, that you all sent us out uh, across the ocean. Um, now, before we begin today's passage, we need to remember what has just taken place in Mark, um, which is the triumphal entry. Right? Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and when he did that, he was implicitly publicly proclaiming himself to be king. Right? Hosanna in the highest, the crowds cried out. Those crowds thought they were on Jesus' side. They thought they were on God's side. A lot of people think they are on God's side. And a lot of people are wrong. Those crowds that were crying out in praise, we know were soon going to cry out, crucify. The, the leaders who believed that they were the keepers of God's truth were in fact rebelling against it, but they didn't know. That's unsettling. Right? The chief priests, the scribes, they believed in God. They affirmed the Bible. They thought they were on God's side, and they were in fact his enemies but they didn't know it. So how do you know if you are truly trusting in God? Which really is a different way of asking, what does genuine faith consist of? And the lesson of our passage is this. It's that genuine faith is not seen in an outward show, but in a personal embrace of Jesus' words. We're going to walk through three sections. First, we will see one thing that is not a sign of genuine faith, and then two different things that are. So let's go. First, verses 12 to 19, here we learn what genuine faith does not consist of. And as you read the account, you notice that Mark goes back and forth between this fig tree and the temple. That's intentional. The one interprets the other. And as the account begins, we're told Jesus sees a fig tree in leaf. Now, fig trees in Judea, uh, their leaves and fruit tend to come out at about the same time, meaning in general the presence of leaves is a sign of fruit. And that normally happens during fig season, of course, but sometimes a tree will blossom and produce leaves and fruit out of season. And so Jesus goes to this tree because this is the only one in leaf meaning it is the only one advertising the presence of figs. Which in effect is to say, Jesus sees the tree putting on a show of having fruit, when in fact it has no fruit available. And he very clearly sees this to be a teachable moment, an, an object lesson for his disciples as they are heading into Jerusalem, where they are about to confront the human version of exactly that reality. May no one ever eat fruit from you again, Jesus says to the tree, and he makes sure that his disciples hear him. And then Mark continues, and they came to Jerusalem. That is, with this object lesson in place, both the disciples and us, the reader, are now ready for what will follow. Jesus enters the temple grounds, and the place is overwhelmed by those who are exchanging money and selling animals for sacrifice. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. Pilgrims would travel from far away to offer sacrifice to the temple, and once they get there, they need to be able to change their money and buy animals to offer sacrifice. 
That's all normal. So what's the problem? Well, the exchanging of money and the selling of animals was supposed to be a service offered toward the purpose of worship, meaning worship was supposed to be the focus and goal. But in the temple, as Jesus walks in, exactly the opposite is true. The fact that this exchange is all happening right in the temple court practically means worship is near impossible, right? There would have been an overwhelming noise of people bartering and animals bleeding, not to mention the smell. Nobody's worshiping in that context. Nobody can pray. That's not really conducive to reflecting upon your sin and turning to the Lord. But that didn't seem to matter to those who were running the temple. Because for them, as Jesus says, the purpose was profit. Meaning, worship in the temple was the means toward their true end, which was making money. And Jesus, outraged, drives them all out. Like the fig tree, those who were working in the temple had an outward show of faith, but in fact had no good fruit. And that's sobering. That an empty show of faith, which really is to say hypocrisy, draws upon itself a uniquely strong judgment. Right? As, as Jesus approached the city, there were fig trees all around. None of them was producing fruit. Jesus ignored them all, but one. One alone he cursed. Why? Well, because none of the others were advertising fruit. Jerusalem was full of shops, bartering, exchanging, buying and selling, making money. Jesus passes them all by because they were not doing it while putting on a show of worshiping God. And of course, that doesn't mean it's okay to be materialistic or to exploit people as long as you're doing it in the commercial sector. That's not the point at all. But it does mean that when you claim to be worshiping God, if you're not following through in reality, you attract God's wrath to yourself in a unique way. And that's a problem because we all have a tendency to perform. And we can sprout an awful lot of Christian-looking leaves without truly loving God or worshiping Him, right? You learn how to say the right things, you tithe, you serve in programs, you come to church regularly, you read your Bible, you say very affirming things about Jesus, join a small group, all kinds of stuff. And a person can do all of those things while they remain focused on some sort of selfish gain. It could be financial gain as here, that's certainly a common one, but it can be any kind of gain. It is possible to do all of those outward trappings of Christianity with your heart set on something else. And you should read your Bible and pray and come to church and dress modestly and speak with respect and so much more. Those things all matter. But none of them is the heart of worship. None of them are signs of real faith. It is possible to do all of those things while you are actually seeking something else. Genuine faith is not seen in an outward show. That is the first lesson of our passage. 
And that brings us to our second section, verses 20 to 25. And here we see our first sign of genuine faith, and it's this. Faith embraces God's words even when God's word challenges what we see. So the next morning, they pass by the fig tree, and they find it withered. And Peter is shocked. Rabbi, look! He calls out. Why is Peter surprised? We are, we are far too often surprised that what God says is true actually comes true. And perhaps nowhere is that more the case than in regard to what God says about judgment. Jesus answers, have faith in God. And he is responding to Peter's shock about the fig tree. So how are those two things connected? Well, what exactly is faith? Well, in part, faith is recognizing that God's words are true. They're not only true abstractly and theologically, they are true in real life. See, it's not enough to affirm God's word. You have to actually believe it and embrace it and depend upon it. And someone who does not do that is, frankly, in a position very similar to that of the leaders in verse 18. They hear what Jesus says, and they seek a way to destroy him. And people do that today all the time without realizing it. They hear what Jesus says, and they seek to destroy him. It's just that today, when you do that, it looks very different. Because the chief priests and the scribes, they had the man standing right in front of them. They actually needed to have Jesus killed because he was right there. But today, you can destroy Jesus by simply making up a new Jesus that's more to your liking. You accept the parts you like, you reject the parts you don't like, and you have, in doing that, sought to destroy the real one. The heart posture is the same. The result will be the same. God's attitude toward that is the same. And at times, God's word is unexpected, at times confusing, at times offensive. And if it is true that we are sinful, then that must be true. If our beliefs and views and desires are naturally broken, and if God's word is consistently, pervasively good and true, then it will contradict us at times. And faith is believing what God has actually said. All of it. Then the next two verses go on and they flesh out that idea a little bit more. Verse 23, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And that verse is so important and so easy to get wrong. Right? This is not a promise that if you develop your faith muscle, that you can go around wielding it like a magic wand. Right? Jesus is not saying, as long as you have enough confidence in the power of your faith, then you can go do whatever you want and God will become your omnipotent servant. That is deeply unbiblical. That kind of attitude leads to arrogance and presumption and self-focus and self-dependence. It is in every way antithetical to faith. Jesus has just said, have faith 
in God. Faith is trusting God's Word over and above what you see and understand. Meaning, faith is believing that when the Word of God and reality as you understand it conflict, that it is reality that will bend the knee and be remade. Jesus cursed the fig tree. It looked healthy. It was all full of leaves. So here's the question. When the disciples walked away from that fig tree the day before, what should they have thought? Should they have thought the tree was alive or dead? It looked alive, but Jesus said it was finished. They didn't understand how that could be, but Jesus had said it clearly. And faith is trusting Jesus and his word above all that you experience and all else that you understand. So if the words of God and a mountain are walking down the sidewalk in different directions, and there's not enough room for both of them, it is not the word of God that has to step aside and defer. Faith is not about what you claim for yourself. Faith is about laying hold of what God has claimed. And when you do that, there is nothing on this earth of any size or significance that can stand against the Word of God. And then verse 24 pushes us even more. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Meaning, it's not enough to just believe that God's Word is true in general. You need to believe that it is true for you. It's not enough to believe that God is the provider. You need to believe that He will provide for you. It's not enough to believe that Jesus died for sins. You need to know that He died for your sins. You need to know that every sin you have ever committed was nailed to that cross. You need to know that you, you personally, have been clothed with His righteousness that God loves you and accepts you because of what Christ has done. Meaning, embracing the Word of God means embracing it personally. That it's not just true out there. It is true for you. So if Jesus will never leave or forsake His disciples, then if you are His disciple, you will never be forsaken. If God works all things together for good for those who love Him, then He is working everything together for good in your life if you love Him. Um, so sometimes my kids ask me, especially the younger ones, they say, Dad, are, are you and Mom rich? I laugh. I said, Rich, are you kidding me? The meek will inherit the earth. I am going to inherit the entire earth. You've never even heard of a bank account like mine. And they think I'm joking. I'm not. You think Princeton has some nice estates? I'm going to inherit the entire new heavens and the new earth. And if you trust in Christ, so are you. It's real. It's personal. Faith does not simply believe that God's Word is true. 
It believes that God's Word is true for you, personally, yourself. And then this second section ends with verse 25. And it is a piercing litmus test of what Jesus has just taught. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And that can only mean that forgiveness is one of the most central and essential fruits of genuine faith. And the way you forgive others is one of the most penetrating tests of whether or not you have personally embraced the truth of the gospel, right? Say you read those words about bold faith moving a mountain, and you're not sure where to start. Like, I want to have some bold faith. I want to see mountains move. Jesus gives you a suggestion right here. You see, a lack of forgiveness is perhaps one of the most characteristic areas in which people make a show of faith but do not produce its fruit. That there are many who outwardly profess the truth, yes, I am a sinner, I'm saved by grace alone, I only deserve judgment, if Jesus hadn't died for me, I would be lost. And then go on and live a life full of superiority and condemnation of those they think are beneath them, a refusal to forgive. Is there some other group of people that you tend to demonize? That's a problem. Do you think that the problem with the world is some other kind of person or group? That's a problem. Are there people you can't forgive? That's a problem. Because all of those problems are founded in the conviction that you're a superior kind of person. Meaning every one of those things is a denial of the gospel. Behind every one of those attitudes stands this conviction. I could never do what they did. But Christians are not the superior people. Christians are the forgiven people. I recently read an account of Leonardo da Vinci learning this principle in his own life. Um, The authors wrote this. Just before he started painting The Last Supper, he had a violent quarrel with a fellow painter. Enraged and bitter, Leonardo determined to paint the face of his enemy, the other artist, as the face of Judas and thus take out his revenge by sending this man down in infamy. Judas was one of the first faces he painted, and everyone recognized the face of the painter with whom Leonardo had quarreled. But when Leonardo came to paint the face of Christ, he could make no progress. Something was holding him back, frustrating his efforts. Eventually, he came to the conclusion that the thing checking and frustrating him was that he had painted his enemy as Judas. So he decided to paint out the face of Judas and start fresh on the face of Jesus. He did, and this time with the success that the ages have acclaimed. See, to forgive, you need to believe that you are deeply sinful, even when you don't feel it. To forgive, you need to believe that you are as worthy of judgment as the person with whom you are angry, even when you don't feel it. To forgive, you need to know that God will bring about perfect justice, even when you don't see it in the world right now. 
genuine faith embraces God's word even when it challenges what we see. That's the lesson of our second section. And that brings us to our final section, verses 27 to 33. We've seen that genuine faith is not an outward show. We've seen that genuine faith embraces God's word even when it challenges what we understand. And here we learn that genuine faith embraces God's word even when it challenges what we want. So we're told that Jesus is teaching in the temple, which is to say he's teaching in the seat of religious authority. He positions himself as the authorized interpreter of God's word who has the right to tell everybody what's true and what they should do. He claims that authority in each of our lives. And then, as now, some people don't like that. So the scribes, the priests, they come up to him and say, by what authority are you doing these things? That drive to seize authority, to keep authority for ourselves, even authority over against God, that is pretty deeply embedded in fallen human nature. It's not unique to the Pharisees. Just, just consider how, off, how different we often react to the exact same situation depending on what side of the equation we're on. Okay? A leader gives a command, and the follower thinks that's a dumb idea. And often that follower resists, pushes back, or they do what they're told, but with frustration and annoyance, even resentment. And consider how that feels when you're the leader who gave the command. You've given instructions, you're just trying to do your job, and people won't listen. And you feel that those followers are wronging you. But consider how you feel when you're in the position of the follower. The leader is telling you something to do that you don't agree with. And you feel that that leader is wronging you. I, I see the dynamic in our house all the time. I, I tell one of my boys to do something, and occasionally they disagree with me. And what's their response? Well, at least sometimes, they feel it's pretty unreasonable that they should have to submit to me. But then sometimes later, and sometimes even in a comically short period of time, um, one of them will tell one of their brothers to do something. And the brother does not obey. I told you not to touch my bag. How could you? And often, they're furious, outraged. How could their brother fail to recognize their legitimate authority? And honestly, I think most of us, most of the time, feel that it is a more serious offense for someone else to deny our authority than it is for us to deny God's authority. And I don't mean anyone would ever say that they notionally believe that. I mean, that's how people actually feel. They get more offended when their authority is violated than when God's is. And consider what that means. That means that maybe though we would never want to admit it or don't even recognize it consciously ourselves, people tend to go around through their lives feeling that the authority gap between us and those under us is greater than the authority gap between us and God. That is ridiculous, not to mention arrogant and evil. It also seems to be a pretty settled conviction of the human heart. 
So, yeah, the Pharisees are wrong here, but we should be able to relate. And then in response, Jesus asked them a question with devastating consequences. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And very briefly, notice four different things that this answer accomplishes. First, Jesus makes clear he's not obligated to them. They have no right to demand answers from him. He is the judge, they are not. Second, if they can answer Jesus' question, then they will have answered their own question. Because if John was from God, then so too was the Messiah to whom he pointed. Third, Jesus' question will make clear whether or not they actually care about the truth or are simply making a power play. Because if they say that John was from God, then the basis of their challenging Jesus evaporates. If they say John was not from God, then they risk the wrath of the people. And then finally, their ability to answer Jesus' question will demonstrate whether, they not, whether or not they have any right to even be talking to Jesus about these things. They are the shepherds of Israel. John claimed to be the forerunner to the Messiah. It is their job to confirm whether or not he was from God. If they say they don't know where John came from, then they acknowledge they are utterly incompetent to do their job. Now, afraid that either answer will, they give will hurt their case, they respond, we don't know. And so Jesus, in turn, refuses to answer their question. And in doing that, he makes four things clear to these men. He does not owe them an answer. They should be able to answer their own question. The reason they can't is that they are focused on their own selfish desires, not the truth. And they are incompetent to act as Jesus' judge. That's a pretty good picture of what it looks like when we take authority for ourselves and challenge God's. In contrast, genuine faith personally embraces God's word even when it challenges what we want which is simply to say true faith trusts in the Word of God. Even when there are things we don't see or understand well, and even when there's things we don't like. The person who does not trust God more than they trust themselves, including the person who does not trust God's opinions and perspectives more than their own, is not a Christian. There is no genuine faith without submitting your mind to Christ. Where that is absent, the most you can do is put on a show. There are all kinds of outward acts you can do, all the trappings of Christianity, its practices, without truly trusting that God and His Word are good. And it's when you are forced to choose between what God says and what you think or want that you can see if you truly think that God is good. The person who thinks they are better than God does not believe the gospel, right? That is pretty much the opposite of the gospel, and that should be obvious. But there are a lot of people who go to church Sunday after Sunday who believe that they know better than God. And, say that, and so they only accept what God says when He agrees with them. One of the conversations in my life that I remember the most clearly 
Um, one of my favorite conversations I've ever had was with one of our boys when he was only four years old. We were talking about the relationship between parents and children, and he said to me, I can't wait until I'm an adult and have kids and can tell them what to do. He thought for a minute and then added, I want to be able to tell everyone what to do. He paused again, just lost in thought as he continued to realize what he really wanted. I want everyone to obey me. I want to be God. Yes, you do, my son, I thought in my head. We all do. Most of us are just not as self-aware as you are. But we're not God. And our words are not the ones that can be trusted. But Jesus can be trusted. And his word is good. Genuine faith is not an outward show. It is a personal embrace of the words of Christ. May it be true of each of us. Let's pray. Father, truly you are a great God, kind and gracious and trustworthy and reliable and thoroughly good. And so we thank you for Christ, that he came because we are not those things, because we had turned away, that he came to die in our place. And we praise you that his death was sufficient for us to be forgiven, for our sins to be paid, that he has risen from the grave. And so, Lord, we ask that you would unveil our eyes, that your spirit would be upon us, that we would see your goodness, that we would see your glory in the face of Christ, that we would see our own failure more clearly, that we would be increasingly less confident in our own thoughts and opinions, and increasingly confident in you and what you have said, and that we would be a people who rejoices to submit our minds, our thoughts, our desires, our goals, our plans, our perspectives to your word, because you are good. Lord, help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.